Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for January 2016. I'm Neil Orford, and this is where we discuss the intensive care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So, welcome back for 2016. It's great to have you on board. For the first month, I'm going to talk about end-of-life care, because there was a great deal published looking at end-of-life care in the intensive care literature. There was an entire JAMA issue devoted to it, as well as articles in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and the New England Journal of Medicine. So on that note, let's start with a viewpoint written by Derek Angus and Robert Truog in the JAMA issue called Toward Better ICU Use at the End of Life. So this viewpoint asks, are treatment in ICU and good end-of-life care compatible or mutually exclusive? They examine arguments and propose five strategies to help ensure the delivery of appropriate and optimal patient-centred care for patients at high risk of death or severe disability. So, for starters, arguments for and against ICU care at the end of life are given. So some argue that ICU admission at the end of life should be a never event for three reasons. First, ICU care is characterised as aggressive use of invasive technology compared to a good death without pain or unwanted intervention. Second, 20% of US residents receive ICU care at end of life contributing substantially to the greater than 25% Medicare dollar spend on end-of-life care in the US. Third, the rate of ICU use in the US is higher than many countries. In contrast, the inherent problem with the last year of life, end-of-life argument is that many patients don't want to die and certainly many don't know when the last year begins. That is, for a significant cohort of patients, it is not possible to separate reversible deterioration and dying, making ICU a rational and appropriate choice while clinicians, patients and families work their way through these issues. In addition, there are therapies that can be applied in ICU to reduce suffering, non-invasive ventilation, complex pain management, etc. They briefly then discuss the issue of stemming the tide of technological determinism. This fairly US angle reflects that patients are more likely to receive ICU care at end of life because they are more likely to receive end of life care in hospital and just overall due to the high number of intensive care beds per head of population. This creates a problem where clinicians expect or are accustomed to care in ICU, even at the end of life. They then go on to discuss five strategies for improvement. 1. Reduce inappropriate ICU admissions. They recommend three key aspects. First, help patients and families decide in advance of acute serious illness or severe clinical deterioration whether ICU admission is warranted. Secondly, ICU physicians must enforce more stringent gatekeeping. And thirdly, the number of ICU beds should be reduced in the US. Wow. Strategy two, 
reevaluate goals of care during the ICU stay. Intensive care must be explicit with themselves, referring physicians, patients and families that the goal of ICU care is to help patients improve and be discharged, not merely to sustain life. There should be regular reviews and discussions regarding appropriateness of therapy and if milestones are being met. The third strategy, improve shared decision making with patients and families. Although ICU clinicians spend a lot of time talking to vulnerable patients and families to be effective facilitators at end-of-life decision-making, physicians may need communication skills beyond compassion and empathy. There are programs developed to achieve this and the challenge is to establish this widely as a core competency. Strategy 4. Improve consensus building among the entire clinical team. This is always a problem for our groups that may not have strong relationships with each other. The interpersonal dynamics between silos of clinical practice are certainly complex. However, the onus rests with the healthcare system to implement strategies that emphasise communication, respect and consensus building while mitigating distrust and moral distress. And the fifth strategy is to make ICUs more humane. Challenge the notion that ICU care includes pain, incapacitation and mental anguish as inherent and unavoidable. Make ICU a humane and healing environment. Reduce unnecessary testing, monitoring, noise and light pollution. Allow ICUs to evolve as rational and reasonable options at the end of life. So on that note, why don't we look at two articles published last month on trials to improve communication and end-of-life care in ICU. So the first in intensive care medicine is a prospective study of a proactive palliative care rounding intervention in a medical ICU. Again, they start by telling us that 20% of deaths in the US occur in an ICU or shortly after an ICU stay and an increasing proportion of older Americans spend time in an ICU during the last month of life. Therapies in the ICU are often accompanied by burdensome symptoms and among survivors, recovery from critical illness is often incomplete. In addition, the family members of ICU patients are at high risk of psychological impairment following their loved one's ICU stay. So this prospective before and after interventional study of patients with a high risk of death admitted to a medical 24-bed ICU examines the effect of a palliative care intervention on clinical and family outcomes. The intervention was the relocation of a hospital palliative care clinician, in most cases a nurse, from the palliative care unit to ICU. Every weekday the investigators informed the palliative care clinician about patients meeting the criteria and then participated in the round. On the first day, the patient was identified. The palliative care clinician at the ICU team know the patient had met a trigger. On the second day, the palliative care clinician made suggestions about the patient's and family needs, which they called a nudge. What did they show? In two eight-month periods, they enrolled 100 patients before and 103 patients after. They don't tell us what proportion of patients admitted to the ICU this, this was, that is, how many had a life-limiting illness. 
In the period before, only 35% of patients had documentation of an interdisciplinary family meeting at any time during ICU, and this increased to 53% after, p-value 0.008. A family meeting was defined as any mention within the electronic medical record of an instance of communication between the medical team and the patient and or family outside of routine rounding with the explicit purpose of sharing clinical information and eliciting patient and family input for the purpose of medical decision making. In terms of days between ICU admission and family meeting, this decreased from a median of 5 to 3. There was no difference in ICU mortality, 28 versus 27%, hospital mortality, 35 versus 32%, or 90-day mortality, 45 versus 35%. In terms of length of stay, there was no difference in the ICU or hospital length of stays overall, or the ICU and hospital length of stay among non-survivors, although in the non-survivors it reduced from 6 to 4 days for ICU and 9 to 5 days for hospital, but they weren't significant. An exploratory multivariate analysis revealed the reduction in ICU length of stay in non-survivors was 19% and the reduction in the hospital length of stay in non-survivors was 26% and they were significant. There was no difference in family satisfaction, depressive or PTSD symptoms. So what does this tell us? So proactive palliative care rounding in the ICU improved the time to and the number of family meetings for patients admitted to ICU with a high risk of dying. Overall, the intervention didn't affect mortality, ICU or hospital length of stay although there was a non-significant decrease in all of those outcomes which may be worth exploring. That is consistent with previous literature where good palliative care can improve or reduce mortality and lead to reductions in ICU and hospital length of stay. Finally, the intervention may decrease ICU and hospital length of stay in patients that are going to die. Now a significant limitation to this study, other than its single centred and its relatively small size, is the definition and nature of the family meeting. So was it actually shared decision making where patients and family goals and values are discussed? Was training provided? We don't know, although the use of skilled PC clinicians may offset this. Still, it is a positive message and provides an outcome and economic incentive to further study this. The second trial last month looking at this was a randomised trial of communication facilitators to reduce family distress and intensity of end-of-life care in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Again, the intersection of patients at a high risk of dying, intensive care and palliative care is brought to our attention. This study examines communication as an intervention and the effect of facilitators on clinical and family outcomes. So what did they do? This parallel group, RCT, randomly assigned patients thought to have a hospital mortality of greater than 30%, and this was based on criteria like ICU greater than 24 hours, adults ventilated, sofa greater than 6, etc. And they were randomised to intervention or usual care. The intervention was a communication facilitator 
and this was a nurse or social worker trained with a two-day program to improve communication between the ICU team and the family by acting as a communication facilitator or navigator. And the, this facilitator organised interviews by facilitators with family to understand the family concerns, needs and communication, to organise meetings by facilitators with physicians and nurses or other clinicians offering a brief sam summary of family concerns, etc. They provided communication and emotional support adapted to the family member's attachment style, which was assessed. And finally, the facilitators participated in family conferences and organised 24-hour follow-up with the family after discharge to acute care. They report that over five years, 2,209 patients were screened, 448 met eligibility criteria, and 170 were enrolled, which is not many. The family member participation rate was 76%. The primary outcome, family member depression, was significantly decreased at six months, but not three months in the intervention group. There was no difference in PTSD in three and six months. ICU and hospital length of stay, costs, mortality, the intervention was not associated with uh, ICU mortality, it was 25 versus 21%, but decreased ICU costs among all patients, it went from 75,800 to 51,000, and particularly amongst decedents, where it went from 98,000 to 22,600. Also, among decedents, the intervention reduced ICU and hospital length of stay from 28.5 to 7.7 .7 days and 31.8 to 8 days, respectively. So, overall, this shows better professional communication, improved family well-being at 6 months, and reduced length of stay and cost, particularly in patients who died. Again, the study has limitations. Only 170 patients were enrolled over five years. Maybe that reflects inclusion criteria, who knows. Other studies in this area using general palliative care indicators suggest high proportion of patients would benefit from a goals of care discussion. That is, in the order of a third of patients admitted to ICU may have a life-limiting illness. But perhaps it's time we started treating communication as a competency like a procedure. Okay, let's move on to another article in American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine using technology to create a more humanistic approach to integrating palliative care into the ICU. So the authors start by saying our excuse for not providing high quality palliative care in the critical care setting can no longer be lack of evidence or appreciation of the role of palliative care at the end of life. They give us a definition of palliative care, an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial and spiritual. So we should move on from whether or not we should provide good palliative care to how best we do it. This perspective examines the strengths and limitations of current ICU-based palliative care models 
as the basis for discussing two innovative, scalable, technology-based strategies with potential to improve the humanistic delivery of high-quality palliative care in the ICU. They discuss the unmet patient, family and clinician need, as that is, we're all affected, the evidence of palliative care effect with room for improvement in delivery, the barriers to operationalizing a scalable ICU-based palliative care system. They talk about structure, so 19 to 35% of ICU patients could be eligible for specialty palliative care on the basis of objective triggers. This is not intended to limit care, but to improve quality of life through better communication techniques to establish goals of care, reduce conflict, address symptoms, assist navigation of the health system, etc. And there are not enough palliative care specialists to meet this need. So there is a structure issue. Process, the most common model, consultative, where ICU clinicians initiate referral, leads to variability in systematic under or over referral, complexities about ownership and late referral when conflict has already arisen. The integrated model relies on ICU physicians to be trained in palliative care, again leading to a variability depending on skills. The collaborative model is the most feasible, a mixed model that allows both. The problem of identifying patients with palliative care needs despite the reliability of clinical triggers remains unresolved, particularly as electronic health records are not specifically designed to recognise these. Finally, the use of prognosis as a proxy for palliative care needs is unlikely to capture the actual needs of patients and families. That is, until we ask them what they need, we won't know. Remember, survivors of ICU have issues as well. Outcomes. There is a lack of patient-centred outcomes for ICU patients and families, a key limitation to our understanding of this process. Possible solutions. The authors argue a successful palliative care system for critical care should incorporate sensitivity, that is, we identify all potentially eligible patients, specificity, we focus on those with a greater unmet need, and enhance collaborative ICU palliative care teamwork. In addition, the use of the electronic health record to automate identification, ascertain patient family needs, triage to the appropriate level, that is primary provider, nurse, ICU physician, palliative care physician, they go on to discuss examples of electronic health record use and difficulties etc. And then they provide three strategies of care and the pros and cons. The first is triggers based in prognosis or diagnosis and this is what the basis of most of the current literature and evidence that is where we use triggers of that are disease based to identify patients with palliative care need and the downside of that is that they're not particularly sensitive they then discuss the second option which is poor outcome phenotypes plus a palliative care needs assessment and the use of phenotypes provides a risk stratification, then an electronic palliative care needs assessment based on the National Quality Framework. Eight domains of palliative care quality could be instituted, allowing us to identify more patients. And the third is that we perform an electronic needs assessment alone on everyone. In conclusion, they tell us it is a time of great opportunity for ICU-based palliative care that we need a better model, we need to use automated technology, and we need to incorporate an assessment of family and patient need 
on everyone. So let's finish up with a essay written by the author Atul Gawande in the JAMA issue, Quantity and Quality of Life, Duties of Care in Life Limiting Illness. Everyone dies and there is a lot of suffering in the last year. Pain, depression, periodic confusion, dyspnea, incontinence. And the care for this may have gotten worse, not better. It could be people are trading quality for quantity, choosing this intervention heavy prolongation. But the evidence doesn't support this. Indeed, it suggests the opposite. If we provide holistic, patient-centred care, we reduce non-beneficial intervention and improve quality of life. So what can we do? We can encourage earlier conversations with patients and families while they are competent to establish goals, values and treatment plans. We can provide better palliative care at home and in the hospital. We can train more palliative care specialists. We can incorporate the principles of palliative care, including communication skills, into all our training. In the US, we can address the harmful policy of requiring patients to give up on curative therapy to be eligible for funding for hospice care and palliative care. And finally, we can be not too distracted by the loud, sometimes bitter, physician-assisted dying debate. Atoll Gawande concludes with, Everyone dies. Death is not an inherent failure. Neglect, however, is. So that's it for the Journal Club, January 2016. Come to the website, otherwise we'll see you next month. Thank you.